One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey everyone, David Kern here. Before we get to this week's episode, I just want to tell you about the Circe Institute Atrium Program. It's a one-year program that explores the foundations of Christian classical education with online classes and discussions. The Atrium now features five different courses, and participants can choose any one course or sign up for multiple courses. These courses include our very own Heidi White, our very own here on Close Reads, talking about classical pedagogy. And then we've got Andrew Kern talking about classical rhetoric, Matthew Bianco talking about Plato's Republic. And then from Wes Callahan, you can choose either the Divine Comedy or the Iliad. So there are great options for anybody who wants to dig into any of these subjects. If you'd like to learn more, head over to circeinstitute.com slash atrium. Again, that's circeinstitute.com slash atrium. And once again, those courses are Heidi White on Classical Pedagogy, Andrew Kern on Classical Rhetoric, Matthew Bianco on Plato's Republic, or Wes Callahan on The Divine Comedy or The Iliad. One more time, that link is circeinstitute.com slash atrium. And with that, let's get to this week's conversation. Hello, I'm David Kern. I'm Heidi White. And Tim's not here. <laughs> it's becoming a theme on this podcast, which is called Close week. Reads. And it's a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are going to be reading Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Were Watching God. But Tim, as with as was the case with me last week, Tim is not Tim's not here. He's what did he say he's doing? He's in a conference call that He's shows in a no signs call of that ending. Shows no signs of stuff. I've been in that very call, I think. Oh yeah. That, yeah. that same call. Yeah. So fair. He, yeah, exactly. Right. It's um he he's he has a day job, you know. He he has things he has to, to attend to and people that he's responsible to. So he's being responsible and attending to those people. Um, but we are, of course, here to talk about chapters 11 through 17 of Zora Neale Hurston's novel, Their Eyes Were Watching God. Hey, Heidi, though, before we do that, I want to ask you about something, because at the top of this episode, my voice appeared reading an, you know, some, some information about a Circe course through the Atrium program, and your name came up, because as mm-hmm. it turns out, you are doing an Atrium program, uh, an Atrium course. Could you explain a little bit about what, that's, what that is and when you're going to start and all that? Just like let people hear it from you instead of through the copy that I read at the top of the show. I'd be happy to do that. I'm really excited about it. Uh, Yeah. So in the atrium, we will be in my class, which is, of course, the very best class. And since none of the other excellent teachers are here to defend theirs, I can say that freely with no consequences. (laughs) Um, uh, So I will be teaching norms and nobility over the course of a school year. And norms and nobility is I what I consider and many consider to be the essential text of Christian classical education. It's a treatise. Uh, and it's excellent. Just one of those life-changing books for me. One of those books that changed the course of my vocation and my family and even my own soul. And I'm not overselling it. That is just true. Uh, so um, anybody who's So interested, if you want your soul... To be healthy. To be changed, right? Um, well, for me, it was definitely for the better. This is a this is a great <laughs> book, and I just can't can't wait to talk about it with a group. So the way it's going to work is that on the first and third Tuesdays of the month, beginning on September seventh uh, at eight p.m. Eastern time, there'll be a group of us just getting on Zoom and talking about the book and learning about classical pedagogy and classical Christian classical education all together. And I'll be leading it, um, but it will be a discussion format which will be lovely. So anyway, you can go to circeinstitute.org to learn more about the atrium program. It just pops right up when you go to circeinstitute.org. Is it .com or .org? Both. I believe it's both. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So uh, there's going to be, if you heard the ad read at the beginning, you know that there's uh, one with Matt Bianco, one with Andrew Kern, and one with Wes Callahan. So there's lots of options. But of course, Heidi. Heidi's, you know. I recommend my class. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but the other ones will also be great. And be I wish fine. I could take all of them. So, yeah. <laughs> true story. Okay. Well, let's talk about their eyes. We're watching God. Um, we actually don't know if Tim's going to join us. Um, we he, hope so. He may or may not. He may appear as I did last week. 
he may not appear. And, you know. It's like a little mystery. We'll, we'll all be surprised together when he either appears or doesn't appear. I have a question for you about this section. Because in this section, tea cake, he takes front, he moves front and, front and center. I don't know what Thank exactly. Thank you for not to... saying takes the cake. <laughs> it like did, it did cross my brain for a second right then you but, dismissed it and but then i just, I just brought it back resisted. into right, the yeah. conversation thank, thank you for like that. some kind of monster <laughs> yeah no seriously see what i have to deal with here people <laughs> um so okay so here's the question tea cake you know becomes a key figure in this section um in some ways he pushes Janie to the edge are we supposed to like him more than her previous two husbands I think that's a great question. And at the beginning of their relationship, I, I thought, surely, yes. And to be honest, I still think supposed to, you know, that's how you phrase the question. Mm -hmm. I still think, yes, I think we are supposed to think more highly of him than we, than we do of Joe or Logan. Um, I don't, I don't know that I can defend that, but I think that's the case. But there's, I mean, there's definitely some problematic, very problematic <laughs> yeah. aspects to their relationship that I cannot tell. To be honest, I honestly cannot tell if um, the audience of the time would have seen them as problematic as how we see it. I don't know. Uh, such as? Beating her. Oh, <laughs> wait, you don't think that would have been taken as a negative thing at the time? Like, you don't it think Zora Neale Hurston mean, is saying that that's a negative? Well, well, that's a, that's a different, that's a different question, maybe. I guess I'm no, thinking the that's people true. within the context of the people within this story even don't seem to take it very seriously, including Janie herself. So what I cannot, what I cannot, tru I truly cannot tell if the, is, is that kind of an accepted cultural convention well and he says in 17 i think it's 17 that he is doing that to show that well first to show he's the boss to somebody else not even to janie but also as like a way of showing his loyalty and his commitment to her and like he definitely see, he definitely doesn't see it as i was gonna say an aggressive act but I mean, he, mm -hmm. he probably sees it's aggressive, but it's aggressive. It's meant to reveal to the community that she is his, but also that he is committed to her. So there's this like deep broken irony uh, in, in this action that he has taken. Right. And yet is, is it saying that his, like due to his commitment to her, because of his commitment to her, is it better than what Joe and Logan treated her like i mean if you had to rank these three guys based on what we know right now how would you rank them in terms of their uh quality as husbands to her man i <sighs> that is such a good question now i wish i wasn't known for saying that's such a good question <laughs> because now it feels like meaningless well, maybe but... <laughs> maybe let me just throw this out there you're known for saying that because a lot of get good questions get asked of asked. you. And so then you appropriately say that's a good question. That's I'm what I gonna, think. I'm just going to throw that out there. Into Since the, you're the main questioner. Right, right. Because then right, I, because I ask the questions. Yeah, yeah. For sure. I think you are a well of really good questions. And I think that one, I don't want to say it's better than the average question. <laughs> it's like top 15%. But that's a great question yeah. because uh, I don't know. <laughs> I honestly, like after leaving this section, I think tea cake's the worst of all of them. Yeah. It almost feels like each one gets worse, but at first you think they're going to be better. Right. And the reason why that's such a compelling question, good job, two thumbs up, <laughs> is because I would rank him as num number one worst, like by a long shot. However... Janie herself doesn't think so. And there seems to be this really interesting exploration of how much it matters, how she feels about him and whether that kind of covers a multitude of sins. Love, does this great love cover a multitude of his sins towards her? And at this point in the novel, the book seems to be saying, as well as Janie herself saying, 
yes, he's the best of all because of how much she loves him. Mm-hmm. Objectively well, that, speaking, I can't defend that. There's that bit where she's talking to one of her friends, I think. Um, and she's like, he just, he basically, basically, I can't remember exactly how she said it. Basically, he can take any little old thing and find the joy in it. Like, and then we can be happy. And then we live in that happiness. And then when it's gone, we wait till the next bit of happiness comes around. And for her, the idea that somebody could take the little old things of life and help her find joy in them is probably a pretty revolutionary, pretty transformative idea given what she's lived through. So you can see this, like you can see why he is appealing Mm -hmm. to her. Um, Go on. Say more about that. Well, because, because he, he, he makes her happy. (laughs) You know, he, 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 I don't, I would, I would actually would love to, I wonder, do they even love each other is an interesting question. They make each other happy. And for her, it's almost like he is a sort of badge. Sorry, the other way around for him. She's like a badge that he kind of claims and clings to and likes to, go about with and for her he makes her happy in ways that she never had experienced before he you know he is incredibly suspicious like not that he's suspicious of her but like from the beginning he he is definitely not we are suspicious of him and and the idea that she doesn't see that is like has you yelling at the book right totally which is i think a strength because you look at it and you say he just took your money in 11 or 12 or whatever it was. And yet, and you spent the whole day realizing, thinking you've been duped. And then when he showed back, showed back up, you don't, you think everything's okay now. Like she's willfully kind of allowing her, like convincing herself that he doesn't have, that he's not as suspicious, that he is not as problematic as he seems. Because when they're together, she's happy in a way she never has been before. And that's mm-hmm. like different than actually, it, it, in a way it's different than actually just like actually being in love with somebody. Right. No, I think what you're saying is really important, David, because it, the, the book presents us with this very complex, complex and nuanced dichotomy between happiness and the circumstances of life, right? Because she wasn't happy with Joe, but she is with tea cake. But the only thing about her life that makes her happier with tea cake is the way she feels about tea cake. Does that make sense? Like it is, it's an internal posture of happiness that the outside circumstances don't seem to be able to bear the weight of that, right? Provide a a good enough explanation other than the fact that she just really, really loves him and he really, really loves her, right? They have this bond and that's the thing that makes her happy. Whereas with Joe, they didn't have that. And so the book seems at this point to be making a claim that love is what makes somebody happy, right? Do you think that's true at this point in the book? Hmm. I think, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, it just occurred to me while you were waiting, while I was waiting for you to say something, something else occurred to me, which is this, that at the beginning of the book, there is this dichotomy between men and women, right? This is what a man is looking for. And this is what a woman is looking for. And the claim is that women are happy based what women are looking for is an internal, here, let me just read it. Women forget all those things they don't want to remember and remember everything they don't want to forget. The dream is the truth. And then they act and do things accordingly. That's like a thesis statement. And that's what's happening in this section, it seems to me. Read it one more time. Sure. Hold on. I closed it. So, okay, here it is. (laughs) This is in chapter one, right? Yes. Um, Well, let me read the first two paragraphs here. Um, The first one is ships at a distance have every man's wish on board. For some, they come in with the tide. 
For others, they sail forever on the horizon, never out of sight, never landing, until the watcher turns his eyes away in resignation, his dreams mocked to death by time. That is the life of men. Now, women forget all those things they don't want to remember and remember everything they don't want to forget. The dream is the truth. Then they act and do things accordingly. Tim's here. Hi, Tim. You did show up. We were wondering if you would magically appear or or not, and it would be a great surprise to all of us. One yeah, way every other. week is like a little bit of a little bit of surprise. You're muted. It was David though, so. last week. We won't be able to hear you if you talk when you're muted. I said that through the magic of technology, I'm here. Well, we're so glad. Me too. Have you guys read Their Eyes Were Watching God? Have you guys read that book? I mean, a portion of it. The Zora Neale Hurston book? Yeah, yeah, the Zora Neale Hurston book. Yeah. Yeah. What do you Um, think? We should talk about that. Yeah, let's let's do that. Hey, Tim, do you think that we're supposed to like Tea Cake better than the other husbands? It's one of the questions that I had for today. And that's what, we're, that's what we're, that's what was prompt. We're talking about that right now. So how deep, that how deep into that are you? Can you. Oh, uh, 13 minutes. How <laughs> um, developed are your arguments in favor of against liking tea cake? We are. Uh, Where do you guys stand? Okay. So. I was. We, just I don't know that we've said that we stand. Where framing we stand. right. I was framing the conversation in light of the first two paragraphs of the of the book. Um, when and I just read right when you were coming on. I just read the first two paragraphs. So if you want to, like, you know, skim that over real quick okay. um, of the book. And, yeah, yeah, the whole book. And then I was saying perhaps like positing this as a potential interpretive theory uh, that perhaps that second paragraph about women, now women forget all those things they don't want to remember and remember everything they don't want to forget. The dream is the truth. Then they act and do things accordingly that perhaps her happiness with tea cake is in the context of like, this is a thesis statement that their relationship bears out because as we were saying, there's many things about their relationship. They're extremely problematic. Mm -hmm. And if she was to come to me for advice, I'd probably be like, run the other way as fast as you can. Mm -hmm. Right. However, she's framed in the novel and described as being so happy and so full of love. And so is he like their their attachment to each other is mutual and strong and deep and real. Um, and yet there's all these problematic aspects of their relationship that are not to be overlooked or swept under a rug. And so maybe that's part of this idea that women only remember the things they want to remember and they live out their dream versus this idea of kind of progressive movement towards some kind of horizon. But they're it's, inhabiting their internal happiness in a very different way. So then Heidi said, maybe the reality is tea cake well, she said she thinks he's the worst of all of the husbands, actually, but that she's happy because of her own feelings towards him. And, you know, she talked about, not Heidi, Janie talks about how her grandmother, she's kind of rejecting the, the strategy that her grandmother had for her life. She couldn't imagine sitting on a porch. And so I think was how she put it. And so all she wanted was for Janie to be able to sit on the porch. But then when she got there, she didn't know what she'd be able to do. Like she didn't have any plan for her once she got there. So she kind of rejects her grandmother's strategy for her life and wants to be able to make some choices. And so for me, I wonder if the question is less about love and affection and more about like the notion of freedom. What she Mm -hmm. loves is the ability Mm -hmm. to choose who she's with, not have it dictated to her. Yeah. Um, Which then is ironic that at the end of this section, they kind of end up back in, back in the fields. Um, I think that Zornia Hurston is trying to, you know, put us back where her grandmother would have been as a child. Um, just in Jim Crow South, not in civil war, your pre-civil war South. Um, so Tim, do you, which of the husbands do you think is, is the worst? If you had to rank the three, Joe, Jody, Logan, and T-Cake, how would you rank them? Based on what we know through chapter 17. It's so hard. Like in a way, they go from safest to least safe throughout the book. So the safest is probably, uh, yeah, I'm going to say Logan. Second safest is 
You think so, Heidi? I do. Yep. Second safest is Jody. Least safe is Tea Cake. At least in terms of like their ability to be consistent and to provide for her. I know that Joe was wealthier. He's this entrepreneur, but he also hit mm-hmm. her, you know. Um, tea cake. It, <laughs> tea cake is tough, man. He's so he's this lovable rascal, I guess, is kind of how I view him. I'm curious to know how you guys view him. It's really hard to overcome her waking up, having the $200 stolen from the secret place in her dress and him being gone for 24 hours. It's, I mean, like we're really getting off to a rough start, tea cake, really rough. You know, that's what, that's what I was saying is like, she's looking past a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And it's in a funny way that is probably not healthy. <laughs> and as a reader, we're kind of put in this position that we don't really know what to do when he comes back and kind of wins her affections. Again, she's so eager to have her affections won over. And I kind of feel like I'm in this limbo space between, okay, I know that our heroine really loves him and keeps coming back to him. And I also... I also just feel like tea cake is just trouble. He's just so much trouble, I mean, but he's also completely winsome. Like I absolutely see what she likes about him. He's completely winsome more. So I think even than Joe, Joe was always like, there was one way to encounter Joe. I'm the boss. I am the boss of you. And like every time that Joe is in the room, I am the boss of you. And TK kind of has that. He has the charisma to be, I am the boss of you. But um, it's not the only way that you can approach him. Well, then at the end of this section, it is where he beats her up just to show that he's, in, he's the boss. He's in charge. And the community's kind of response to that is, I don't know what the right word is. I'm like. Weird. Yeah. Weird. That's the safe word. It's just, it's weird. Yeah. I mean, they, they seem to treat it as something that was a long time. It seems to be accept generally accepted from the very, I mean, from the very beginning of the novel, even, even Nanny brings that up to her about, like at some point your husband will probably beat you. Like, so there is, it seems to be relatively like widely accepted yeah. that that is a normal dynamic between a husband and wife at some point in marriage. At some point he's going to, he's going to hit you mm-hmm. like that. I think is so what, what I can't tell is if Zorniel, I truly can't tell if Zorniel Hurston is indicting that or just accepting it as part I of know. the culture. I know. I, so can I, I can't tell either. I cannot tell either. I want to read the first par- the part of the first paragraph on, of chapter 17 on 147. Uh, before the week was over, he had whipped Janie, not because her behavior justified his jealousy, but it relieved that awful fear inside him. Being able to whip her reassured him in possession. No brutal beating at all. He just slapped her around a bit to show he was boss. Everybody talked about it next day in the fields. It aroused a sort of envy in both men and women. The way he petted and pampered her as if those two or three face slaps had nearly killed her made the women see visions, and the helpless way she hung on him made men, see, med, made men dream dreams. And then they talk about how, how lucky... It has the com- people in the community talking about how lucky they are. So he slaps her around a little bit, then he pampers her, and then everybody is jealous of this. But it's, it, it's, it's as if for him, it, it's all about possession. For Joe, it's it all about- It relieved the I mean, fear I mean, inside of him. It, re- it re- reassured him in possession that she is his. For tea cake, it's all about possession. Yeah. 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 Well, and power, this idea that this was interesting to me. Like, I was like, huh, I never really thought about that as a potential dynamic that it's, he claims that it's his way of keeping her. Mm-hmm. 
like, because if I assert my dominance, then over you, then you'll like respect me more, be afraid to leave me, whatever, whatever that is. Um, and what's interesting to me is if you juxtapose that, if we compare and contrast the beating to the episode with Nunky, the woman who's chasing tea cake, right? Mm -hmm. It's very clear that Zora Neale Hurston is indeed indicting adultery. Like it's clear that she has an opinion about this, right? That the book itself is condemning tea cake for, or is condemning that he might be cheating. And that's the thing that Janie responds to. Like she's the one who's picks a fight with tea cake that night after that incident. And, but in this instance when he actually does beat her she doesn't fight back at all she doesn't and she's silent for the entire chapter and that's interesting to me because that this whole section to me seemed like Janie was gaining a voice right she finally gets to talk she finally gets to do things that she wants to do she gets included in the porch conversations mm. um he brings her out into the field because he wants to be with her um and she learns a new skill like these this idea of of tea cake treating her as an equal that's a big part of this whole section right there is something he does offer her he he includes her and he wants her around he doesn't use her as a trophy he doesn't put her on a pedestal um they, they have what appears in the first couple of ch- chapters, 11 and 12, to be like a very equal relationship. And then later on, these, these aspects of dominance and control come into the relationship. Um, but instead of seeing them as red flags, she seems to accept them. And so my question for Janie is, is there any kind of actual meaningful gaining of a voice in this section? Is there more agency in her or is it because she's so in love, she's willing to accept more of these problematic elements in her relationship with TK? That seems to be what the, the book is asking. And I'm, I'm not sure yet. I yeah. can't tell. Yeah. I am so with you, Heidi. <laughs> I'm so with you. Can I bring up something else that really struck me about the book at, at this point in the reading? Mm-hmm. It seems like there's two stories going on. One of them is obviously Janie's story. You know, this it's we're going to find out what that story is at the end of the reading next week, but it's clearly Janie's story. Mm-hmm. But then the other kind of plot line, or it's more of like a sociological observation are these kind of um, communal events where the conversations are happening on the porch or in a restaurant or at the store and there's a bar fight or there's a bar fight and we just kind of get dropped right into the middle of it. And we've seen this multiple times in this book, Janie slides to the background and we just watch these kind of fascinating characters, which in this section, like with the best nicknames, motorboat, I kind of wish my nickname was motorboat. Um, we <laughs> see these, yeah. Stop to bottom. We see these different characters kind of, um, they take the stage and there's no single one who is the kind of like the central character and our central character, Janie kind of drops to the back and we just watch these characters interact with each other as they're drinking, playing cards, working in the fields or whatever. And it's such an interesting juxtaposition. These two, it's not even a two storylines is like storyline, Janie, cultural sociological snapshot is the second part of the book or the other part of the book. And I don't quite know how these two exactly integrate. I could kind of form some hypotheses, but until the end of the book, I'm reluctant to say this is why these two aspects of the book are, are prominent. I mean, it really does remind me of a play or a weekly television show. We've got this like on these ensemble of characters who kind of add to the life of the, story but it's 
there's what the through line is is hard to tell. It feels like two different books, as you said. Yeah. And the scenes feel random. Uh huh. Which I which I kind of have a I'm not as a criticism. I just kind of have a hard time under you know following that like deciphering what what her what her purposes that are there. Heidi, go ahead. Well, I mean, Zora Neale Hurston is by academic training an anthropologist, and so the the questions of culture and the interaction between culture and the self and the individual seems to me to be very front and center in this novel. Um, and in the last section, which it seems that we all agreed had there, there's a difficulty in the setting being able to uphold the emotional weight of the, the narrative. That's what we talked about last week. On, um, and, and in this section, I didn't sense that at all. Like there was like exactly what you just described him, the anthropological elements yep, yep, right, yep, that yep. she's describing, like this vibrant communal culture with the food and the storytelling and the conflict and the people and the nicknames and the, all of that. Um, and we get this like cross section of this thriving, but very contained, self-contained culture. And I thought it was delightful. I thought it was a delightful glimpse. Mm-hmm. And I thought that Janie's integration into that culture and her choice to embrace that culture for herself, to make a choice to be involved in it, even though she could have, you know, married a richer man or a man of who, like Jody, had like this longing for more of a high culture, right? Instead of that, she's like, I like this. I want to be a part of this. I want to be a part of this, like, vibrant communal culture um, with this, like, robust communal life um and she chose it for herself and she integrated herself fully into it along with tea cake who seems to me to be very much a representation of that culture yes yes right like he came out of it he brought her into it and he is everything that all the rest of those men are whereas jody on the other hand was always trying to get above it and to be better than it right and instead tea cakes integrated into it and that gives her then an element of choice and ownership and agency over this particular culture that I think is described so vibrantly. And so mm-hmm. maybe that interaction that's between helpful. the community and the self is that through line that you guys are looking for. Yeah, that's very helpful. The, um, the muck, like, mm-hmm. did that the sound in the Everglades? That sounded to me a little bit like, um, like a little bit of heaven on earth, to be totally honest. I was like, man, yeah, work hard during the day, you know, you're working in the field. And then at night, it's a party. It's a straight up party. And you're living next to everybody. You're sharing a fire. I was like, man, this sounds so wonderful. It sounds terrific. I think what you just said, Heidi, I had not thought about it like that. That makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, this is, to just say the obvious, this book is a picture of African-American, th- this particular African-American community in the 1930s in Florida. And it is unlike anything that I have like ever been kind of like fully immersed in for a long time, right? And it sounds like really great. Um, and it also sounds, and I think it's really notable. There is not a white person in the book with the exception. I wasn't sure about this. Was the sheriff white? Remember when the sheriff is going around, the policeman is going around and the, there are all these fights after everyone gets paid and the sheriff is kind of like making sure. I don't that, know. Yeah. I, I don't couldn't know. tell if that was, I just kind of assumed, I don't know if this is, accurate or not, I kind of assumed that would be a white guy just because of the kind of like mm-hmm. nature, like that's, that's the place we're in historically in this book. Mm-hmm. But let's presume that he is, he's the only white person I think that's going to be in this entire book. Mm-hmm. And Zora Neale Hurston like feels um, no compunction about like, yeah, this is not, this is about us. This is about us. Right, right. And she was criticized for that pretty harshly within her own community for writing a story that describes, um, that didn't deal with the 
the, the fractures between black and white culture to the extent some of the other writers in the Harlem Renaissance were doing. And that was useful and helpful. And she was criticized for it because she didn't take on these big kind of political, sociopolitical questions that other black writers were dealing with. But I think, again, it makes a lot of sense considering that she was an anthropologist studying cult black culture she mm-hmm. studied like the everglades the muck was another word for the everglades mm-hmm. i looked it up and, I, oh, and she studied oh. it um and she studied that and so she presents these very con- this series of contained black only cultures the same in eatonville right um and even with nanny it was very much this idea of this transitional generation someone trying to escape from jim crow south um and and, and even that's a pretty self-contained culture. The family, of course, is self-contained anyway. Mm-hmm. And then there's Eatonville and now we have the muck. And, and so there's this rich cross-section. It's looking at these various settings where a, 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 a black American can be fully black and fully American within these subcultures. I think it's lovely, but I know she was criticized for it. That makes me think about... Um you were saying that she was kind of criticized for not engaging in these kind of socio-political questions that maybe were more central to other writers of the age. Um, Mrs. Turner, Mrs. Turner, what a loaded character. I mean, what a, what a pretty despicable character. Like I was trying to find anything redeeming about her and I couldn't come up with anything. So she's there to basically kind of, it seems like, get Janie's attention set on her brother, who's not yet appeared, who appears late in the section that we read. Um, it seems like she's- That's what Tea Cake says. That's what Tea Cake says. And I kind of believe Tea Cake. It, it seems like that's what she's about. And then she kind of rolls out with her horrible vision of like- of kind of like, like what's, what's the word? I can't remember the word. Basically those who are superior have certain kind of genetic qualities. I mean, it's just terrible. It's terrible. And what I found so interesting is that Janie doesn't really erupt on her. She kind of just is, I think she, she didn't even really roll her eyes. She's just kind of like this woman, what is this that she's rolling out with? And when she starts, when, Mrs. Turner starts talking about Booker T. Washington. You know, you can I can tell Janie has this kind of inner revulsion about what she saw, but she never really says that much. So I found that really interesting that Hurston introduces this really pretty despicable character. And thus far in the book, we don't really get a like an ideological pushback at her. She gets eventually kind of cast out you know, of the community or she kind of like leaves the community, but um, you see that as being ideological being cast out of the community. Like, do they push her out for her ideology? No, it doesn't seem like they do. Yeah. They, they just don't I mean, like her. And they're basically like, she doesn't like us. Cause we're, she, yeah. she calls them too black. Yeah. 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 And she's like, if we're too, they're basically, they say, if we're too black for her, then she can leave. Yeah. And tea cake um, is that like suffers more kind of um, abuse at her hands than any other character. And so I think that. And they going, claim it's because for her, tea cake is, you know, well, he's, he's too black for Janie. Cause Janie's got a little bit of, she's a little lighter. Yeah. And so for Mrs. Turner, who also is lighter he's ruining the lightness that's in Janie. Yeah. Right. Right. So just to kind of capitalize on what Heidi said earlier, if tea cake is a figure who's really kind of, he's at home in this community, he's risen from this community. And now we have this other character, Mrs. Turner, who maybe she's been a part of the community as long as tea cake has, but she clearly um, she is, uh, she is not proud to be part of that community. 
she's a little bit embarrassed to be part of that community. And so I just wonder if that she is this kind of juxtaposition to tea cake and to Janie kind of like throwing her arms around this community and being embraced by it and embracing it in all of its kind of like troublesome aspects that seems highlighted by Mrs. Turner's kind of retrograde racist theory. You know what I mean? Am I making any sense? I'm, I'm, I'm making this all up on the fly. <laughs> well, not really. You've probably been thinking about it. I've been thinking about it, but like, but I haven't tried to articulate it in any way. Heidi, what were you going to say? Um, it's a complicated part of the story, Mrs. Turner. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, it's a natural, she's, she represents a very natural result of an oppressive society, right? You have then people within an oppressed group who are going to struggle with self hatred and the rejection of being a part of that oppressed group. That makes total sense. Um, And so in some ways, I think she is the same kind of tragic figure that Nanny is. Um, Because she's like her, her form of resistance to the larger oppressive narrative is to hate herself whereas nanny's is Mm -hmm. to then um nanny's has a different response but it's the same problem right like nanny's response is to try to like put you in a safe context so you have to deal with it as little as possible whereas mrs turner is um attempting to escape it by rejecting herself and others that remind her of the the dissonance between the power dynamics within the society. Um, what's interesting about Zorniel Hurston is that we don't get any context um, from white culture to explain that, right? Um, we don't know Mrs. Turner's story. We don't know Jody's story. We don't know, we do know some of Nanny's, right? Which I'm grateful for. Um, so, but but what Zorniel Hurston seems to be doing is kind of within this cross section of a, this like a vibrant communal culture, which is presented so positively and is so healing for Janie, for our protagonist, mm-hmm. right? And so delightful to her and to others. Um, but that's not the whole picture, right? And Zorniel Hurston knows that. And so our author is giving us then, um, even though even though we don't get to, we don't get to see what is so, at least not yet. And I don't, I haven't read the rest of the book. We don't get to see yet um, what those specific oppressive dynamics are, but we do need to see in order to be honest about this culture, we do need to see characters who are responding to the larger issues that are taking place outside. And I think Mrs. Turner represents that. Um, And she's really awful. And yet at the same time, it's, perfectly explainable like you look at where she's at and you're like oh Mm -hmm. i get Mm -hmm. it girl like that's Mm -hmm. must be so hard so that i think i felt as you described like an ambivalence towards her like just this like oh don't hate yourself like but at the same time understanding that that's what happens And, and you're right to point out like nanny's coping mechanism is a result of kind of like the oppressive world that she's living in. I find it so much easier to sympathize with that coping mechanism than Mrs. Mm-hmm. Turner's. Sure. You know, David, what did you make yeah. of Mrs. Turner? I mean, I, th- I think I made of her <laughs> what <laughs> you all are saying. I think the thing that keeps standing out to me about this book and particularly this section is the notion of possession and ownership because what we get in Nanny is, as Janie said, this dream of freedom, which in theory has come to fruition in her life, right? During her lifetime, like slavery has been abolished. And yet here they are in Jim Crow, Jim Crow America, in no longer traded 
you know, they're no longer commodities to be traded in a literal sense. And yet they have no ownership of themselves or of their places. And so it becomes when we get an, we get this town that's, that Jody becomes the mayor of and he's building this town up and it's created by black people for black culture so they can create and preserve that, that culture that becomes this sort of standard of hope, right? Mm -hmm. Something that's in, it would never have been possible. Right. Mm -hmm. And so for someone like Nanny, that's incredibly meaningful. They have their own Porsches they can sit on. There's, they own their own store that has its own Porsche. And all Nanny wants is for Janie to be able to experience that. But then as Janie says, well, what do I do when I get there? Like right. Nanny never had an idea for, for me to, for what I can do when I get there. Because it's one thing to not be owned, to not be a commodity anymore. But it's another thing to have ownership over your own existence. To the degree that any human being does, I've obviously there's, we, none of us are truly, <laughs> truly have, we, we are all a part of a larger continuum that is existence. But they don't have, the, 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 the idea of possession and ownership keeps coming up. And especially with Tea Cake, where Tea Cake, he hits her because he wants to prove that he possesses her to himself, to her and to the community at large. And the community at large looks at him and says she's his woman there you know and the hitting the the way he hits her and then the way that that he um treats her after that like kind of what does it what does it say again that she like he he, he pets and pampers her well, yeah mm -hmm. he pampers her pampers mm -hmm. her yeah um th they recognize that relationship and so here again she she has been hit to prove ownership, which is exactly what the slave mm -hmm. owners did. That's mm. right. They could prove their dominance over the commodity that was this human being by whipping them. And so it things have come far and yet there is this sort of illness at the core, this like uh, perversion at the core of their relationship that is just hearkening back to that. And that's why for me, it's interesting that you mentioned that the fields that sounded like heaven, I think in a way it's supposed to, and then at the other hand, it's supposed to hearken back to the slaves working in the fields and singing together because they had to find ways to survive, mm -hmm. you know, to, to make it survivable. And that's what I kept thinking of is that here they are back doing the same kind of work they were doing. They're drawing a little bit of wages, but there's still this illness, this, that that is the core of the, that is still inflicted upon the culture that they're trying to build because of a sense of the father's type scenario. Um, right. It's not their fault that things are broken and that they, they don't have roots upon which to build their culture or well, they, that the roots that they're building their culture on came out of the brokenness of slavery. That's not their fault but it doesn't change the fact that what's going on is broken. Like the, that in that master slave dynamic has been stamped. It, on them it in seems some way. like it's clear anyway, that Zora Neale Hurston is drawing a connection. Uh -huh. I'm not, I don't know if I would put it quite that dramatically, uh -huh. but I think, but she is clearly drawing a connection. In other words, I don't want to say that she is saying it, that it's stamped on their marriage, but the notion of a human being belonging to somebody else who has possession over them has been stamped on them, mm -hmm. on this culture. And what they're trying to do is carve a culture that is separate from that notion. Mm -hmm. And that's not, that's, um, I mean, how and do you do that? We haven't arrived yet. Right, exactly. Yes. Like, I think that that's the preoccupation of the novel and why one of the reasons why the portrayal of white culture is less of a priority for her because she's examining these dynamics that are embedded within that she's asking, what does it mean to be a black American? Just a very short amount of time away from slavery. Mm -hmm. And this idea that they don't, things don't, they don't heal in one generation. They're, this is, this is deeper than that. And in, in acknowledging and in that, fact, the choices yes. that were made out of, after the slavery was abolished made some of those things worse. Exactly. And I think yeah, we're seeing the ramifications. Perpetuating, right. perpetuating these cycles, which is, right. again, I mean, that's what Nanny said, right? Like that, that the, the, 
the black woman is the mule, right? And so this, and then that's been examined in various ways already. And, and here we have in this section, even this man that Janie madly loves is perpetuating this cycle against her. And what does that mean? She That opens up all of these questions for us as readers, interpreters, and cultural commentators, right? Whoa, what does this mean? The, the mules thing is, I'm glad you brought that up because in a way, TK treats her like a pet or an animal that he can beat and then give her treats. That's right. Because the animal loves the master. You know, like you have a dog who loves you. You kick the dog and give it a treat and the dog's going to forgive you. He treats her as if she is an animal. And one of the things that I think we're waiting for as readers that Zorin Yelharsha is trying to set up is when is she going to when is she going to free herself mm-hmm. from that? When is she going to see the forest for the trees and, and create some kind of uh, like selfhood out of that? Now, the thing is, we know at the beginning of the book that he's not still around and she is walking on her own in a way that makes the other women jealous. So we know something is going to happen that's going what, to allow her to have what's something to happen. But we haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. It's interesting that she does that though, because it, otherwise I wonder if the book would just be like too bleak <laughs> without having that. Like if she had just started it with her as a child, instead of framing it where she's telling her friend after she has walked across town and all the women see her and are jealous. Like if she just started it as an orphan Jane Eyre style, is the book too bleak for us to get to the end where she finally carves out that independence? That, hmm. uh, that'd be interesting. I would have, I think that those opening chapters are crucial. Agreed. So crucial. Cause I, I'll admit I, there've been so many times and I bet you guys felt this while I was reading that I thought, remember Tim, remember where she ends up. It's okay. Keep going because probably because tea cake is such a, um, he's not an enigmatic character. He's uh, he elicits two things in me at once. And I, and I also kind of would want to protect Janie from him. So I remind myself, it's okay. Like she seems like she did her business with tea cake in the end. So we'll get there. Be patient. Okay. So we've, we're at 50, 55 minutes. So we don't have a ton of time left. So we should probably figure out, is there any, uh, any final thoughts you guys have? We're going to do the final chapters as i guess it's 18 19 20 something like that yeah for next week yeah. so any final thoughts on this week on what we talked about and then leading into next week what are you looking for as we conclude this book and then also is there any passage we missed or anything like that that you know you want to just make sure that you get to comment on before we go how do you want to go first yeah and i have two final thoughts the first one is that at the same time i'm reading this i'm listening to a book called The Overstory by Richard Powers. Uh, it's about it's a book about trees who try to protect trees. Uh, and there's, while there are some good things about it um, and some beautiful <laughs> writing and a couple of good characters, I am finding it a bit of a slog. Um, and perhaps you might ask me why I don't give up on it. And the answer is that if I give up on, it, I can't put it on my reading list for the year. And I've always already put in 18 hours on <laughs> On this audio book, yeah. So, um, I'm gonna finish this book. But anyway, the point is that that I I can't help contrasting the two because I'm reading them at the same time. And the overstory is absolutely a book designed to be uh to to like make us care about trees. It's in some ways pure propaganda. Mm. Make you care about trees. That's the goal, right? Like trees matter, and I gotta get people to care about trees. So there's very little nuance in the story. Very, very, very little nuance in the story. So I find myself not caring about the trees mm-hmm. because he didn't bother to put in anything mm-hmm. complex about any of the characters that makes me interested in them other than just like they started out not caring about trees and then something happened to them. So now they care about trees. So they're good guys. Right? The Ayn Rand so, of the ecological That's exactly movement. it. Yeah. it is, that is what it is. And I, <laughs> that, I contrast that with this book which is brave enough to let it be really complicated for us to let us say, I don't know how I feel about tea cake. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Like she seems really happy with him mm-hmm. and she loves him so much. And I want her to be happy because she hasn't had much happiness. So you go girl. And then there's another part of me that to your point is like, run away. Mm-hmm. This is just going to get worse. And I, and I think it's courageous for an author to let us kind of hang there and be there versus telling us what we ought to care about and think. And so Although this whole section was complex and I did feel ambivalent, I think it's really good. And I'm, I'm moved by how courageous the author, authors who let us hang in that tension really are, because it must be so tempting as an author to tell us what to think and lesser authors do. But this is a great book in that sense. My second final thought is that I was um, really, um, like so moved by the dialogue this time. I know it's a bit of a slog, although I'm developing more of an eye for it. Like I'm finding myself reading it much more easily than I have in the last couple of weeks. Um, and I noticed this and I wanted to run this by him and see what you think. So one of the questions we keep talking about with the, with the book is Janie getting her voice, right? And by that, we mean her agency. But but what I think is really interesting from Zora Neale Hurston is that she gives her agency literally through her voice. We're not told anywhere else other than Janie's own words that she's getting stronger and more has more agency and making her own choices, right? It is in conversation through her actual literal voice that we start to feel more confident about her because just the narration of the story is like tea cakes beating her. Right. But her own voice is saying, but I love this man and I'm happy Mm. with him. Right. And so that is so interesting to me and I'm sure intentional on her part and quite brilliant in my opinion. My only comment is along the lines of Heidi's first comment. I don't know what's going to happen with her and tea cake. I don't know. And I can imagine the story being resolved in multiple different ways and we're going into the last three chapters and I don't know. And I think that's also a great credit to our author that like, not only is this main character or this kind of a semi-central character, tea cake really ambivalent, the means by which we're going to arrive at the conclusion of our story, which is going to be, I think like this independent woman kind of stepping forth and knowing who she is. Um, we don't know how it's going to resolve, you know, we don't know where it's going to go. Whereas like it, you know, in an Ayn Rand novel, since we just made the comparison, there's only one way the story can be resolved at the end and you're just kind of waiting for it to play out and hopefully it'll be satisfying in the execution. But this, I genuinely don't know. I'm really curious what's going to happen in these last three chapters. What are your final thoughts, David? Well, I was just going to say, Heidi, you're, you're reading a book about tree activists and I'm <laughs> yep. reading a book about loggers. Oh, cool. <laughs> Did you recommend that on your video this week? Was that one of the books you recommended? Mm, I don't know. No. It wasn't one remember. of my six. Okay. Main ones. No, that was what I was asking. But yeah. oh, there's a book, I'm reading a book called Damnation Spring. Uh, it's a new novel by Ash Davidson. That's about loggers in the Pacific Northwest. Um, so just hmm. fun fact. I might really want to read that after you're, reading. <laughs> I'm going to need another perspective. Maybe on, you guys should the, put on that, tree life. those two books in a room and kind of like just lock the door and see which one is standing, you know, 24 hours later. It occurs to me, I'm also reading the new novel by William Kent Kruger, which is called Lightning Strike. And he has a series of mystery novels about a, that take place in Minnesota on, on a Native American reservation and in an area where there's a lot of logging done. And so I'm realizing now I'm also reading another book about people who do logging, who the culture, it's like two different cultures in two different parts of the country where logging is a key part of the economy. That's weird. It's hmm. interesting. That's interesting. It's, it's, there's a thematic connection. Sounds unconscious, but <laughs> I didn't know that either of them were about logging. <laughs> so, but as it turns out, uh, so my one of the, the things I wanted to say um, is that that the notion of um, possession and ownership is hmm. I want to see how it wraps up. In particular, I want to see what happens with her money because yeah. it's kept keeps coming up. 
and it's clear that she owns this money. And to me, there's this gray area about is where tea cake is stepping in to sort of, sometimes he's like acting like the money is his, like he can buy a guitar and go spend it on gambling, but it's okay. Cause he can earn it back gambling. But then sometimes he's like, no, no, it's yours. We'll just use my, all the money we spend on food will be my stuff that I earn. I'm going to take care of my lady and all that. And so how the note, how, how her money plays out in the theme of ownership and possession at the end of the book is going to be interesting because I feel like it's going to be representative of something deeper within her. That's great. Uh, so that's what I, I want to right. watch that's out great. for. Well, don't forget, in two weeks, we're going to do a Q&A episode. And then after that, we'll do the book of The Dun Cow by Walter Wangerin. Wangerin? How do you say it? Who just name? died. I know. Yeah. I know. Last I'm, week? I'm, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah, so yeah. moving that we're reading, and I've never read the book before. We'll have Don't to, kill me, I wonder Jesse if Brown. we can get a... Um, maybe we'll have to see if we can find a special guest to come on for one episode and talk to us about... Because he's a pretty beloved author among certain people. So maybe we'll do a little, uh, do a little digging mm. on that. Um so we'll do next week. We finish the the reading for their eyes. We're watching God. Then we do the Q and a, and then we'll begin the book of the Dun cow after that, Tim, there's a, there's a play you wrote out in the world. Yeah. Right now, a performance of a play that you wrote. Yeah. Should we tell people about that? They can, you, you performed it along with Jesse Turpin and John Hodges. It's about Chesterton and Shaw, two yeah. little known intellectual figures from the 20th century who <laughs> happen to have a relationship with one another. You wrote a play about that. You performed it not once, but twice at the conference, the Circe conference in Charleston. Mm-hmm. And so for people who are you know interested, they can go to the Circe Institute website, that's circeinstitute.com. And they can, they can find this play. They can download it for free. You can also donate. And I think you get, I think half the, half the money, right? Yeah. The money yes. would, will be split 50, 50 between Circe and myself. Tim McIntosh. Mm-hmm. And it's so good. You guys like listeners, please do this. Cause I was standing next to David while we were watching it. And I leaned over to David in the middle of the play. This is the first time, you right? know this Tim. Yeah. And I said, I see Tim all the time. I know Tim. Like, but there's, like, I didn't know how talented you are. Not that I doubted it, but like to see it in action is remarkable about somebody you care about. So it's thank you, Heidi. beautifully done. Thanks. It's an incredible play. And then and I you said, you are a yeah. badass playwright. <laughs> thank you, Heidi. It, it is kind of funny. Like, you know, there are aspects of each of your lives that you're just expert at. And I, we just haven't seen, I just haven't seen those things that whatever that aspect is. I feel like it's um, the summer of, of learning things about each other. Yeah. Right. Oh, right. Guys, this is a sweet moment. <laughs> but I, I, so, so they did this performance during a conference session and then I just kind of like, yeah. Can I, can like, I say something about that, David? Um, I get, yeah. We performed the play scripts in hand as one of the breakout sessions at the Searcy conference in Charleston. And David and Heidi were there. And of course, you know, they had not seen the play and David's in the back and we get done with the play and we're talking to the audience and it went really well. I was really, really happy considering we had rehearsed the thing, I think because it's two so and a half times mm-hmm. and David's in the back. And, you know, after we've done the kind of Q and a David's like, Hey, would you guys be willing to perform it again? With at 9 p.m. tonight? At 9 p.m. tonight. On the main stage? And I, like, in our actors, Jesse and John said yes, and I was so thrilled about it. And so this whole crew assembled to light the stage, including our editor, Logan. Logan figured out how to make these stage lights from kind of like these found footlights that were at um, the hotel, the right? Marion Hotel. And we lit the stage into a light box, and it looked Great. It looked so good. And the Fukushans from um, Roman Roads Media. From Roman's Road Media, like edited this thing with a four camera um feed and they edited it beautifully. And we mic'd it up so our like the audi- the actors didn't have to scream at the audience because it's a big transition to go from a small room to a huge auditorium. So the kind of collaborative effort 
of getting everyone on the same page in about three hours and putting this thing on, it was an absolute thrill, an absolute thrill. With a, ba- with a dinner banquet in between. With a dinner <laughs> banquet in between. And we called David uh, the executive producer of the show because functionally that's what he was. He just made <laughs> this thing happen. Well, I mean, I just said, I just said, look, why don't you guys do this? And then you guys made it happen. But isn't that what executive directors or executive producers do? You guys I think do there's it. money involved. Yeah. <laughs> it was a vibrant community effort. Yeah, it was. And it was great. So but, please, listeners, yeah. if you haven't seen the play, go and find it on the Cersei website. It's well worth your time. It's excellent. Yeah, and it's about 40 minutes. Yeah. I think something yeah, like that. Even so, a full hour. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and of course, John Hodges is a composer, teacher. If you're familiar with, if you've ever been to a conference, you've heard him speak. He's great. Jesse Turpin is a Close Reads listener, friend of ours. And so shout out to her too, because you just pulled these two people in. And a writer, being just actress, terrific. Uh, yeah. Yeah. teacher. She's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So uh, shout out to them as well. So com. you can find that as a product and then... It's zero dollars as a product, but if you want to make a donation on the checkout page, you can. And Tim will get half that money, and then Cersei will get half, and that will cover the production costs that went into it and hosting the product and all that kind of stuff, the transaction fees and so forth. And then Tim gets Tim gets half. So we're gonna fund Tim's uh, fall vacation. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. He probably yeah. wants to get all of your screenplays too, all yeah. you people out yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Maybe not. <laughs> All right, well, we should, we should, <laughs> we should wrap this up. So, um, before, before Tim gets inundated with, <laughs> with screenplays, <laughs> specs, <laughs> with screenplays written on spec, um, just to be clear, Tim does do not, crime, Tim does not do own crime. a movie studio. Uh-uh, don't own um, a movie studio. <laughs> but with that, for Heidi White and for Tim McIntosh, I am David Kern. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, happy reading. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.